What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. This is Not Another Baptist Podcast, a weekly podcast about what two pastors are learning in the trenches of church revitalization. This podcast is sponsored in part by our friends at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Visit swibbits.edu to find out more about what God is doing on Seminary Hill. Matt, this may be my favorite episode that we've ever done. You know, we've had the one chip challenge. No, uh, (laughs) none of the three times that we've done that have been my favorite. You know, we've had some cool guests. We've had J.D. Greer, now president of the Southern Baptist Convention. We've had Andrew Peterson, one of our favorite uh, musicians. But today um, we have a former Bauer. (laughs) 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 We, we, we We have former Major League Baseball player, current Major League broadcaster, David Murphy, who was a big part of the Rangers for a long time, including uh, two really special seasons back in 2010, 2011. Um, and so, Matt, I'm not even going to introduce you. People know who you are. David, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's start off. Just tell us a, bit, a little bit about who you are, about your family, and, and what you're doing these days. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I always introduce myself as, uh, you know, first of all, family. Uh, my wife, uh, wife, Andrea, of 16 years. Uh, four kids, two girls and two boys, 13, 12, nine and six. And so we have a, we have a pretty busy household. We do everything from, uh, you know, I, I coach a 10 U baseball team. Uh, my oldest plays club volleyball. Uh, we've, we've done dance. We're doing soccer. Uh, we've done basketball. We, we did football in the fall. So there's plenty of activities going on in, in my family and, um, you know, it's, it's lively. It's kind of just in that phase where, um, you know, at the end of every week, we, we love getting our rest because a lot of times we're just worn out from, from all the running around and back and forth and driving to this and that. Um, but I think we also know what a sweet time this is in the life of our family and that um, someday this time is going to be over and we're going to miss it. So we're, we're trying to soak up every, every little bit of it. But um, I think that's that's pretty, pretty easily me um, because that is that's the day to day around here, um, as you mentioned. Former player, uh, played for four teams, the Red Sox, the Rangers, the Indians, and the Angels. Um, most people probably know me from my career with the Rangers. Uh, live in DFW now. I'm a broadcaster for the Rangers. And uh, just was fortunate enough to play on uh, on the two best teams in Rangers history. Uh, I guess if we're talking by, by results anyway. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me. Um, I, I've loved baseball from the time, from what my parents say, from the time that I was three years old. My dad got me a Nerf ball and bat, and I uh, kind of took it and ran with it. Baseball's always been my thing and uh, continues to be. Awesome. When, when I have dreams about my major league career, you know, it's usually in the Astrodome and I'm uh, stepping up to bat in, uh, you know, Jeff Bagwell's stance, you know, crashed right. down almost like a catcher and ready to just nail a home run. Your first hit as a major leaguer in your big league, big league career was at Fenway Park. This is the stuff that kiddos would, would dream about. What do you remember about that moment? I remember just how scared to death I was. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was a day game and, um, 
you know, at my parents and, uh, my in-laws had flown in and obviously, uh, my wife and I were just so thrilled just because this was, you know, I got drafted in 2003. So this was three plus years in the making and just kind of grinding it out through some, uh, you know, and honestly some poor minor league seasons, uh, with, after having high expectations of being a number one draft pick. So actually getting there, uh, and probably understanding full well that I was not going to be on the major league roster at the beginning of the following season that I was headed back to AAA. So I was September call up and I figured I might as well just enjoy, um, you know, that, that first month in the big leagues and just kind of soak it all in. Um, I remember getting to the ballpark knowing uh, I knew that I was going to be in the lineup um, and we we're facing AJ Burnett. And I'm like, man, are you serious? Uh, like, cause in the course of a minor league season, the only guys that you're going to face that have nasty stuff that are 95 and above are probably like the big time prospects, which you're not, that's not going to happen very much. I would say today it's different because velocity is such a big part of the game that probably everybody throws hard. But anyway, I know that I'm facing AJ Burnett, a guy who at that point in his career had already thrown a no hitter who throws really hard. Um, you know, you see a scouting report in the minor leagues and the guy throws 89 to 92 with this and that. Well, you look at Burnett's scouting report and it's, you know, 96 to 99 with the wipeout curveball. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll just get up there and see what I can do. So I think the first major league pitch that I saw was it was 97 or 98 and I took it and then he threw me a curveball. Uh, no, let's see. He threw me another fastball that was might have been a, a mile an hour faster, 98 or 99. And then he threw me a curveball that I was able to lay off of. And then he just tried to, tried to hit a spot away on, uh, on a sinking fastball away. And I kind of just was in two-strike approach. And I tried to just make sure that my time was early because I knew the velocity was coming, got my foot down, and just flipped my hands at it. And sure enough, shot it into center field. So that was just it was one of those moments that everything's moving so quickly. And they're just like, wow, you know, that first big league hit. Uh, I remember, you know, Bill Hasselman, first base coach, patting me on the head. I still have pictures of it, but uh, to be able to do it at Fenway Park and in such a um, big time, you know, baseball tradition uh, in the baseball tradition of Boston, uh, just really cool feeling. I don't even remember yesterday that detail. That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, now I will, so I can recount like ball games that I've been to like that. My wife is, is it's, it's a, it's a dumb talent, but you know, I mean, do, you, do you have, so do you remember stuff like, like from every season that detailed or is it kind of just those high moments that. No, I think, uh, I mean, I remember more than that. I think as, yeah. as I was able to experience more, uh, my early memories got watered down, but um, I don't know how familiar y'all are with uh, the website baseballreference.com, but you can look on there and you can see like I can I can type in my name and there's a section there where I can see how I did against every single pitcher throughout the course of my career. Wow. So I remember I remember I stumbled upon that website like two years into my career and it was in the off season at one point. And so I was showing uh, showing my wife and uh, and so she was like quizzing me on how I, how I did against every pitcher and I nailed them all. She was like, how are you doing against this guy? I was like, Oh, you know, I'm two for seven with an RBI and a double or, you know, whatever. So early on, 
when I didn't have a whole lot of at bats to my name. Um, it was pretty easy for me, but I think over the course of my career, I think I wound up with around like 3,300 at bats or something like that. Okay. So I think after there, I mean, I, I can say, you know, the pitchers that I had the most success against, but I, I don't know that I'm going to have the exact numbers, that sort of thing. Yeah. But in, in terms of, of high moments and random things and low moments, uh, there, there's a lot of, a lot of random things that, uh, that I'll remember from my career. Yeah. That's cool. Um, well, one of the things, so, I mean, we are a couple of pastors and so we're very interested in talking about spiritual life. Uh, one of the things about a baseball season is it's, it's grueling. I mean, I've heard, you know, even like NFL players in, in interviews talk about, I don't know how baseball players do it because it's an everyday thing for six months straight. Um, and so over the course of 162 games and something like 180 days, how do you, how do you maintain your spirit or how did you maintain spiritual growth over that time? So I actually have an interesting story about that because uh, the first, say, 2008 through 2012, those were the first five years of my career. And, and there, if you look back at my numbers, um, there was a lot of consistency in my batting average and, you know, just the, the amount of home runs that I hit, that sort of thing. There was there was a lot of consistency. I was never, um, you know, an all-star caliber player. But I was uh, consistent enough to hold a major league job and, and to be a part of a, of a winning environment. And, uh, and so I kind of got to the point where I was like, man, I kind of have this baseball thing figured out. And I'm coming off my best season in 2012. I hit over 300. And so um, I was just like, man, I just, need to, I just need to add the power to my game now. And obviously, you're always positive. You're always believing in yourself. But, um, you know, my, my faith was always a big part of it and how to, um, you know, how to connect baseball and faith and just what, what God was doing in my life through the game of baseball. Um, and it was always easy in spring training because you show up at the ballpark really early as it is. You get a workout in maybe uh, you, you know, you take care of your body. You get in the training room if you need to. And so, but uh, I was always a guy that, I mean, we stretched probably nine, nine thirty, but I would show up at the ballpark about six. And so there'd be plenty of time in there. A lot of times we'd have Bible studies a few times a week, uh, as opposed to say, if we're home and for a seven o'clock game, guys might show up at two, but I was more of a late arrival guy just because if I'm not seeing my family that much for so much of the year, I want to get to the ballpark as late as possible. Right while also being able to get my work in and being, being, a, being a good teammate and being able to prepare well. So there was just no time for things like that uh, a lot of the time throughout the course of the season. And so uh, you're always, you're fresh, you're built up spiritually, you're able to connect with your teammates. Uh, you know, the season, it, it grinds on you, it wears you down from the travel, just from the stress. Spring training is not quite stressful if you know that you're going to be on the team because you're just trying to get your work in. So after 2012, um, you know, I, I mentioned the baseball side of things, but um, in my faith, my, my main goal, I didn't even have any baseball goals for the season. My goal was I always felt through the grind and being worn down that I would always regress spiritually from spring training to the end of the season. And so that was my one goal in 2013. I want to be stronger spiritually at the end of the season than I, than I start in spring training. Well, to make a long story short, God answered that prayer, but he answered it with me hitting 220 and having the absolute worst season of my career. 
So uh, I'm actually going through uh, some discipleship material right now. Uh, and it just talks about how to, um, how to share Christ with people. And it just talks about crisis and it talks about how a lot of people um, they recognize and they come to Christ when they're, they're in the midst of some type of crisis. Uh, for me, it wasn't coming to Christ because I already knew him as my Lord and savior, but it was a moment where I was like, all right, I want to grow spiritually. How's that going to happen? And God allowed that to happen through crisis. Awesome. Well, I am a girl dad, and so I have no weird ambition for any of my daughters to be the next, you know, Jose Altuve or Derek Jeter or anything like that. Uh, and But we do have, you know, certainly as pastors, we'll have people in our churches, uh, and I certainly saw this more in the Metroplex when we lived there, uh, who, you know, they've got the kids in select ball, spring ball, and, and every day of the week they're, they're playing because their kid is going to be the very next Derek Jeter. And, uh, and, but we also know at least reality kicks in, uh, that there's a very small percentage of high school athletes that are going to go on and just play in college, let alone make it to the professional level. Uh, what kind of advice would you give to the mom or the dad of a teenager who is absolutely convinced their kid's going to be the next big thing? Uh, I would say that just, uh, you know, pump the brakes a little bit. Um, I played, there was a kid that grew up down the street from me and uh, they, I have three particular stories. So one, one kid, he grew up down the street from me and he had a brother that was two years older and he always played two years up and he did extremely well on these teams that he played up with. And so everybody was just like, man, this guy's such a, an incredible talent. He made varsity at a big school. Um, and, and was very impactful as a freshman. And so he did a lot of big things. There was another kid who we would always play travel tournaments against that was from the, the DFW area. So I would always come up, you know, growing up in Houston, I would come up and play this kid. He was throwing 80 miles an hour as a 12 year old. Uh, I was hitting the ball 300 feet as a 12 year old, things that were just unheard of back in the day. And then there was another one. He played on my uh, 14, 15 year old team. Uh, sweet left-handed swing, had as much bat speed and power as I'd, I've ever seen. Another guy that made varsity as a freshman. So two out of the, uh, sorry, yeah, two out of those three guys never even played college baseball. So that just kind of goes to show you how hard it is. And then once you get drafted or say, say you go play in college and then you're fortunate enough to get drafted, I don't think you realize the amount of things that not only do you have to play well, but things simply have to go right. Um, you have to stay healthy. Uh, there's plenty of guys that were super talented that I played against in the minor leagues that never got to the big leagues just because they were not able to stay healthy. Um, so, and, and just, you have to get drafted by an organization that has room for you. Obviously, if you play well enough, you're going to work your way in somehow, some way. But uh, not only do you have to have it up here, do you have to have it physically, but things simply have to go right for you. So, uh, you have to have the, the luck of the draw. So it's, it's a long road and, and hopefully it works out, but uh, it's not that simple. And I think I would just, uh, I would just encourage them to, to question their motives uh, on a yearly basis on, on why they're doing it. Are they doing it? Um, are they doing all these private lessons and is their son playing uh, this much based out of, is it fear-based? Are you doing it because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, that sort of thing? So is your son, if, if your son is truly enjoying it and if it's something that works out uh, for your family, then I'm all for it. You know, you, everybody has to decide what's, what's best for their family. 
But, um, and I think health has to be taken into account too. I mean, if you're 12 years old and you're playing hundred games a year, there's a reason why, you know, 13, 14 year old kids are having Tommy John surgery these days. So I think at the end of the day, even if your son or daughter, whatever the case may be, if they, if they want to continue to play all the time, I think you also need to, to step back and realize, um, is this healthy? And am I allowing uh, my son or daughter to be a kid? Um, because so often we're, we're putting them in these environments in these positions where they're always doing whatever activity it is that they're involved in. And that takes away from family time. That takes away from, from the opportunity for them to simply just be a kid. You see, uh, if you could take all of those stories that you shared, like, you know, the guy with the sweet swing, I had a sour one. If, you know, the guy that was playing, you know, varsity ball when he was a freshman, I was lucky to make the t-ball team. If you could like reverse all those stories, you described me perfectly. And so God used that to ultimately give me the opportunity to not be tempted with those sort of things. But that's that's some great advice because as a youth pastor in the past, you know, we had those guys and in past years, I, I saw that kind of shift from where Wednesday and Sunday was sort of sacred for for coaches and so forth. They knew the value right. of them being involved in church or in ministry and things like that. And then over the years, I saw that to kind of dwindle away. And those took a backseat. And, and then we saw them ultimately derail some of their opportunities with college or other stuff because of the decisions they would make kind of without that spiritual guidance that they were getting either at home or at church. So it's right. a so great, great word there. Hey friends, I'm interrupting the show to tell you that there's a new volume available from the Southwestern Seminary Hill Press, the B.H. Carroll Pulpit, a collection of 40 sermons and addresses from the founding president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. The volume reprints sermons originally published in the works Baptist in their doctrines and evangelistic sermons, as well as additional messages from Carroll's time as pastor of the First Baptist Church of Waco and president of Southwestern Seminary. You can find this book right now at seminaryhillpress.com. Now back to the show. So, so on a baseball team, I mean, you have, you have 25 individuals, right. With, with different personalities, um, in, in, in a major league clubhouse, I'm sure you come across a wide range of personal beliefs, wide range of lifestyles, certainly a wide range of egos. So how, how do you make all that mesh together in, into a team that, that works toward a common goal? And especially maybe like, like what you saw in 2010, 2011 with the Rangers, how, how did, how did you bring all that together? And, and pursue that, that one common goal. It was that I mean, beard. It's that beard right that's there. It. That's what it is. That beard is what drew everybody together. Uh, I didn't even have the beard. The beard. Oh the, man. The beard's not even a year old. This is a. Oh, this wow. is a. Start, this started when COVID started. Just imagine what would have happened if you had the beard. That's all I'm going to say. I would say that. Um, just care about people. And, and if you're the, the type of guy that, um, you know, you, you show up to work that if, if all you're care, caring about is your numbers and selfish goals and selfish ambitions, um, it's not going to be hard for, for people to recognize that and see that. And so, um, the organization is going to see it, your, your teammates and your coaches are going to see it. And you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And maybe there are players like that that are in professional sports and they're able to stick around just because they are that talented. But for a player like me, 
um, who was more of a, a, an average player, um, you know, I, I knew that being a good teammate was part of that. And, and it's not like you have to um, overly try. You just need to, to go out there and be yourself. Um, you don't need to single anybody out just because they're different than you, um, because they believe anything differently. I think at the end of the day, I think if you if you show up and you you care about those people around you, um, that's just going to be a benefit to your team. And I think, you know, I always said that, you know, everybody always talks about um, chemistry being an important part of a team. And I think it was around 2012 or 2013 when I always mentioned uh, in interviews or in the media that I never realized, um, even after hearing that, I never realized just how big of a role that chemistry played in winning until I was part of those 2010 and 2011 teams. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, obviously as, as pastors and, and church leaders who are listening to this, that, that, that plays over into ministry as well. I mean, you're going to deal with a wide range of personalities and egos and, and all that in a church as well. And for obviously in, in a church environment, the, the goal is to glorify Christ, right. To, to make right. disciples. But, but I think you made a good point there and that it's not, it can't be about one individual's, um, ego or, you know, a pastor stroking his ego, even in, right. in getting numbers up, it has to be about, uh, about people and about caring for one another. And that's great. And, and there's even a way, I mean, even looking at it for, through the lens of a believer, I mean, it's, it's easy to show up on a daily basis when, you know, you want to integrate your faith into your work. Um, and it's easy to over spiritualize that and, and to make it something that's, that's religious, but, at the end of the day, if you if you genuinely show up and you care about people, that's going to to open up the door to uh, to share your faith, or it's just going to lead by example, and uh, and other people around are going to see there's just there's something different about that guy. And and I think there's something to say that it's that that kind of environment is contagious. Um, you know, just from a, from a fan standpoint, going to a, a handful of games in those two seasons. But I mean, as simple as things like, like the claw and the antlers and all that, I mean, the fans got into that. And, and I think the energy that y'all had in the clubhouse um, was infectious to the fans. And it, it felt th those seasons felt different just being yeah. in the ballpark and, and being a fan watching. And uh, so I, th I think there's something to say for that too. You know, that, that kind of um, that kind of mentality is, is contagious outside of just the organization itself. Yeah, hundred percent. And that, uh, you know, those things that, that are still brought up uh, today, you know, 10, 11 years later, um, that people, people really enjoyed those moments and that just, yeah, that, that connected the team that connected the community, the fans, everything. Yeah. And that, that's something I actually have to write in my sermon notes is smile. Um, because <laughs> I have like this resting Baptist face face. Uh -huh. And so I have to remind myself to, to smile. Like I'm, I am happy to be there. I just might not look like it. So I have to remind myself to smile and, and enjoy that because it is infectious. And, uh, and I'm going to turn this sixth part over to Kyle and we'll kind of reverse course. Cause he's been looking forward to throwing uh, you a curveball um, okay. for ever, ever since we started. And these are some rapid fire questions. He's going to ask you uh, maybe whatever it might be. And just the first thing that pops into 
into your mouth, uh, your mind, throw it, throw it out of your mouth and, uh, right. and we'll see what happens. Right. So Kyle, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I have some, some rapid fire baseball questions here that this should be a lot of fun. All right. Uh, a, uh, I, I will say that I'm a slow processor. So <laughs> okay, it, that's fine. It, may that's take, right. it may take three seconds. Uh, Kyle is too. So it's okay. <laughs> it's true. Um, what was your favorite ballpark to visit? Um, I would say Fenway just because of the emotional ties, knowing the tradition there, knowing that I came up with the Red Sox. It was always fun to go back there. Okay. Who was your favorite pitcher to face? Favorite pitcher to face off the top of my head, I would say Doug Fister. Uh, had four career home runs against him and, and always seemed to fare well. All right. And then the least favorite pitcher. <laughs> Least favorite pitcher would be a tie between Jason Vargas and Jared Weaver. Uh, Jared Weaver, I had like 60 at bats against, and I think I hit like 130. Although I did, I did finally hit a home run off of him in 2013. Uh, but he killed me. And then Jason Vargas was a little lefty who only threw like 85, but he cross fired and. Um, it's like whatever, whatever place the catcher put his mitt in when he was facing me, he hit that spot every single time. Um, is there a pitcher you never got to face, but you wish you could? Oh, I would probably say, uh, I came up right when Roger Clemens was, uh, was retiring. So I would probably say Roger Clemens. Okay, cool. Um, when, when you look back at the 2010, 2011 seasons, what is your favorite moment from those two seasons? I would say just the, uh, the final out and the celebration of, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to the world series because you, you put all this work in starting back in February, or you could even rewind that back to the off season, but then you come together as a team, you start in spring training. And, uh, I think just being able to, to celebrate something big like that, um, even though we, we never made that final out and won the world series, like we wanted to winning the American league is, is a pretty big deal that a lot of players don't get to do that as it is. So, um, you know, those, those two moments were, uh, incredibly enjoyable. Awesome. awesome. And, and then one more. So, I mean, you, you, you played with superstars. I mean, you played with Josh Hamilton, you played with Adrian Beltre, uh, who should be a first ballot hall of famer here in a couple right. of years. Um, did you ever what touch his head? That's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I did. I love that. Was what was when you're running in those circles? Was was there any one that you like encountered where you were just still kind of starstruck, even as a as an MLB player? Um, not guys that I played with. Um, I remember. So Griffey was my favorite of all time. And, uh, and I remember being so excited when he signed with the Mariners. And so we were playing them in spring training of 2009 and Eddie Guardado was still on our team at the time. And he had spent a little bit of time in Seattle. So he knew Griffey. And I remember, um, I remember Griffey riding into, uh, the ballpark on a golf cart. And, uh, and so Eddie was right there and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, dude, look, it's Griffey. And he's like, he's like, you want to go meet him? He's like, let's, let's go meet him. I'm like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't go meet him. <laughs> and so lo looking back at that, I wish I would have, you know, taken the opportunity to, to meet him because, uh, and I, I was, uh, had the privilege of standing in left field when he hit his last career home run. And then, uh, the following day was his last, uh, final game of the season. Cause he retired about a month into the season in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so he got, I think he singled up the middle 
And everybody was assuming that he was going to retire and that that was going to be his last hit ever. So he singled, they take him out of the game. He's had somebody pinch run for him and all his teammates came to first base and they carried him off the field. And I was just like, man, I was just like, I'm so, I'm so privileged to be able to, uh, to be seeing this live. I, uh, I saw him, I saw him take one at bat. It was the first week of 2010. He pinch hit in the ninth inning and hit a go ahead single in the ballpark. Um, and then, and then the pinch hit pinch run for him. But that was the, uh, so I remember the that. one at bat. I, that was the one at bat. I got to see him live. I, I remember that one. Yeah. Pretty cool moment. All right. Well, you survived that and you also survived a uh, incredible major league career. And after you retired, you found your way to the broadcast booth, as we were talking about before we went live for the Rangers. How? How, how did that that happen? Is it just they, they heard you in the clubhouse and said, that guy has a voice like we, we need him? Like, how, how did you land that? Was this a dream or something you stumbled into? Stumbled into 100 percent. So, um, you know, I think I, I was fortunate enough to where, I don't know, I, I feel like um, the fans and the people around here um, see me <laughs> as be- a better player than I really was in, in terms of the way that, I, that I'm treated around here. And so um, I, re- I retired in April of 2016 and they had me to the ballpark um, in June of that year to uh they they had a a jersey frame for me they put a little a plaque on it that said uh i forgot exactly what it exactly what it said but it was said like david murphy um always a ranger or something like that and um and that night uh between john daniels and uh thad levine who was the assistant gm with the at the time and is now with minnesota uh they both said um if you're ever ready to you know to fill some type of role, take a job uh, in our organization, let us know. We know that you probably want to take some time off and be with your family, but good organizations have active alumni. So it was probably about say six months later um, that I met and had breakfast with John Daniels and and we kind of went over the possibilities and and what that might look like for, um, for me to be involved. So at the time he had mentioned uh, just doing the, the pre and the post game show which uh, I'd had a little bit of contact um, over the years with Darren Oliver. And I knew that he was doing it some, and he said that he enjoyed it, that it was, it was something that was pretty easy to do if you keep up with the game. And so I I figured I'd take a shot at that the first year. I think I did like 26 games uh, and then I did 37. And then I did in the fifties last year, I was supposed to um, I think between pre and post and, and uh, you know, fulfilling some of uh, some of the games as a color analyst, I was supposed to work almost half the games, but COVID kind of uh, messed that up. Um, and so I think over time, I really enjoyed doing the pre and post stuff. And uh, I was able to do probably four or five games, uh, which was half of Frisco's broadcast, the double A team. And so that was kind of just something that, I think they needed somebody to, to just fill that role for, but I never envisioned doing that at the major league level. And then sure enough, uh, about this time, two years ago, um, I was invited to, to just kind of do the same thing to do. Uh, I think I worked 12 games on, in the 2019 season. And then I was supposed to, to do the same thing last year, but uh, between CJ Netkowski and Tom Grieve um, and the, the limited 60 game schedule because of COVID 
um, they had to, to give uh, the two of them all of the 60 games. So um, I think I'll get the opportunity to, to do it again this year. But, you know, I always said, um, I, th- I think I remember having a, a conversation with my wife, you know, early in my playing career about, you know, what I might do when baseball was over. And I think she asked me about broadcasting and I said, I'm just not quick on my feet. Like, I don't think I'm, I don't think, and not to mention uh, at this point in time, which something that God has really grown me out of, I've always kind of had a fear of public speaking. And I've never really, never really liked doing it. And so that's, that's one thing that's, that's really changed. And I think more than anything, I've just learned what preparation looks like, because if, if I'm prepared, I don't mind, uh, or if it's about baseball, it's, it's a little easier to me, but, um, that's something that, um, I've kind of grown out of over the last few years. And, and I've really, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, just, and I've also realized what uh, what an honor it is to do that. If you look at a guy like Tom Grieve and how great he is at, at what he does, how the, the many hats that he's worn in the Rangers organization and how loved he is to build a to come in and, and do something what what he does. Um, I don't know that that I could ever fill that role the way that he does or just look across base, baseball at, at so many color analysts who are so good at what they do. And I just I don't see myself in that way. So I was a little bit surprised when they asked me, but I think what I've told people is I'll just keep preparing and I'll do, I'll do the best that I possibly can. And uh, if, uh, if they keep asking me to come back and do it, then that means that, that I, I did well enough to, to stay on. Great. And, and I'll, and I will, um, I'll say, I think you're selling yourself short as a player. I mean, you, you were loved by, by Rangers fans and, and your number seven is retired, man. I mean, nobody else in, in, in Rangers history is going to wear number seven. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've made plenty of jokes about that, especially when the, you know, the, the old ballpark um, was winding down and every now and then people would come and they would ask me about the ballpark and I'd point up there. I'd be like, even, you know, my numbers retired up there too. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, well, last question that we have for you uh, now in, in retirement, you know, as, as a um, as working part-time as a broadcaster, how, how do you manage life and, and faith as a, as a husband and a dad differently in retirement than, than you did as a player? Oh man. Um, I don't know if that's something that I've even gotten a very good grasp on. Um, I think it was, it was easier for me as a player just because um, baseball really dictated our schedule and my kids were always young at the time. And so I think we would just really get used to the routine that was set in motion over the course of those years. I mean, even, um, you know, after the new year came, it's funny because I've been retired for almost five years now. And my wife is saying, you know, it's funny because even five years into retirement, I know that it's the first week of January now. And so my mind automatically thinks I need to start packing for spring training. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think the the dynamic was always challenging. And I think, um, you know, wives definitely aren't given their due and recognized quite enough in, in, the, in the family of a professional athlete, just because it's something that I've wanted to do my entire life. And while there are benefits to it for the family and for the wife, uh, they have to, to raise young kids uh, on their own in, in a lot of instances. And that was the, the case in our household. And um, it could be a challenge just because 
the dynamic of me being here and gone and, um, and the back and forth. And then the off season, there's so many different changes there. So it's almost like, uh, you know, my wife and I talked throughout the course of my career that at times it was almost like I was the fun uncle that would come, you know, that would come for a week or so at a time. And then I would leave again. And so, you know, the kids were always like excited to see me and I was always joyful and energized because, you know, just the, the daily grind of family life doesn't wear you down because I'm out there living my dream. So now it's a little bit more realistic on this side of things. Um, and, and like I said, I think I'm still trying to, to figure out how to, how to navigate that and, and how to lead well, because uh, it's, not, it's not an example that I, that I had growing up. Um, that's no excuse by any means. But, um, you know, I, I think, like I said, I've always been somebody that you tell me what to do and I'm going to go do it to the absolute best of my ability. A lot of times I don't do well in a, in a position of being visionary and creative and, and this is what this is going to look like. And I'm going to go get out in front of this. And, um, and this is, this is how we're going to do things. This is how I'm going to lead. So I think, uh, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to, to, to figure things out on, on that level in, in a lot of ways, but, um, I don't know. That's, I guess that's, that's about it. As you were answering that, it, it reminded me of kind of the, the transition from us going from obviously pre COVID life where I'm traveling a lot, you know, obviously not to the extent of, of you guys in the major leagues, that kind of deal, but, but gone and a lot of, you know, other things on the to-do list, all of that kind of stuff. And so I found being a dad and a husband then uh, being present and all of that kind of stuff was was easier because I, I knew that now work is is done and now I'm home and now this is my my first priority, that kind of thing. And so I wasn't traveling. And, and when I was there, uh, all, all of that suddenly changed because the kids are always there. And it was a little easier to almost take that for granted and kind of do my own thing and, and get on right. the computer, start writing the sermons or, you know, doing the podcast or whatever it may be. And so the kids are there. So I just kind of assumed, you know, and, and I, I'm there, so I don't need to be intentional. And so I found that it was much harder during COVID and all, all of that than it was pre-COVID. And so I was I was interested to see how you'd answer that question, because I kind of feel, felt like it was going to be very similar. Yeah. So. Kyle, send us out. I'm, I'm really right. proud of you. You didn't like, you know, fanboy or anything too bad. I, just, I thought I really thought I was going to see you with some pom poms or whatever there. No, like, I'm, I, now there's a reason I'm doing this at home, so I don't have like my ranger shrine behind me like I do at my church office. But and, uh, and I was no, the one guilty of that. I brought out you know the little you know orbit and and everybody here you know and, and uh, so so yeah. Thank, thanks for coming on, David. Yeah, yes, no thank problem. you so much. Really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening today. Um, until next time, may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel you declare. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We want to connect with you on Facebook at Not Another Baptist Podcast or on Twitter at NAB underscore podcast or our website at notanotherbaptistpodcast.com. Until next week, we encourage you to check out csbible.com to learn about the Christian Standard Bible, our favorite translation for its blend of readability and accuracy. Have a great day, and God bless.
What's wrong with you people?